Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio friday april 5th 2013 this week episode 279 comes to you from studio d in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes i'm here in the studio with roxy v val bender good afternoon everyone Joining us from carnegie or actually from mckees rocks is my co-host the z-man cliff zlotnick Joe, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Val, and guests and listeners. Good day. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. We've got an interview with Dr. Irene Grant. We're going to call that Fungal Infection Fighter is today's show. Uh, we, we're looking forward to a great interview. We also will, of course, have our halftime where we thank our sponsors. But today we're going to go straight through with the doctor. No, uh, We'll have a little roundup, but Dr. Wow is out. Uh, he'll be back with us next week. He's judging a science fair, Cliff, in the uh, Pittsburgh schools. Oh, anyway, cool. <laughs> before we get started, we have to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractors shop visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can also stream past shows right from our homepage at the iaqradio.com website, or you can click the link that says Go to Show and then right-click and download uh, the shows, the previous shows. And, of course, you can always get them from iTunes. Just type in IAQ Radio in the podcast section. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available from ABIH, the IICRC, and the ACAC. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. I'll send you out some information on the renewal credits. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. 
little slow on the draw valve. <laughs> okay, so congratulations go out to Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, Mars PA, who was first to identify Bethany Medical Center in Kansas City as the hospital where the phrase Code Blue was coined. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, April 5th, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your source to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their uh, their website at www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the thin layer of microorganisms adhering to the surface of a structure, which may be organic or inorganic, together with the polymers that they secrete. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Irene Grant. Dr. Grant is a graduate of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and she completed a three-year internal medicine residency under Dr. Gerald Friedland at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, and this was right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. In the years before HIV was discovered, she became acutely interested in recognizing immune weakness. Thus, she subspecialized in infectious disease at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with Dr. Donald Armstrong. As the first full-time infectious disease specialist at Bronx Lebanon Hospital Center from 1988 through 2000, she was pivotal in developing the Department of Infectious Disease, the AIDS program, the Infection Control Committee, as well as policies governing environmental safety in regard to communicable or hazardous exposures to microorganisms. Dr. Grant has a, treated a wide range of patients with different immune deficiencies and medical conditions. She's encountered countless patients with fungal complications and infectious complications, both in pediatric and adults. A significant portion of Dr. Grant's current practice is dedicated to monitoring and treating patients with environmental mold exposure and persistent mold-related illness, including allergic, toxic, and invasive infection complications requiring treatment with antifungal medications. Her antifungal treatments for persistently ill, mold-exposed have been strikingly successful. We met her at the... Uh, conference in Galloway, New Jersey at the shore with Dr. Eckhart Johanning's group, the bioaerosols group, and we couldn't wait to get her on the show. We've got some great music for Dr. Grant. It's more and lupus and tuberculosis, syphilis, thrush, measles, encephalitis, diarrhea, Parkinson's, chronic fatigue. Sounds like the disease song there, Val. Dr. Grant, do we have you on the line? Yes. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate this. I know Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. I know, let's go back a little bit, um, kind of give the listeners a little background. You are a, a um, infectious disease specialist, but I, I'd like, if you would, for, for you to differentiate between like a family practitioner, a generalist, and, and an infectious disease specialist a little bit. I, oh, yes, I think this is good. It also kind of explains um, the, I, the backdrop. There's a, 
the infectious disease community doesn't seem to know much about um, residential mold or mold exposure. And I, so I want to very much explain the overview. Uh, there, are, there are various doctors that see people directly, the primary care, family practice, and um, they, they're usually mostly clinical and, and in the clinics. Internal medicine involves more hospital-based medicine and emergencies and intensive care unit. and uh, It's a, a more, uh, it, it's, it's a longer training. It takes three years of hospital training. And then infectious disease is a subspecialty. Internal medicine has many subspecialties. Okay. Infectious disease is one. And, uh, and then there's all these other, there's other doctors who, uh, know other things that do allergy and immunology, occupational medicine, and so forth. They're all, they're all different branches. How, how did this subspecialty that you're in kind of contribute to your... It seems you have a different perspective than, than some of the family doctors, etc., that I've talked to. How do you think that specialization contributed to that? Well... Infectious disease is the specialty that focuses on knowing about microorganisms. And we're trained to know how they are in the environment, where do you, where do you pick them up, what do they do in the body. And that's the infectious disease specialty. Uh, most doctors get a very uh, simple training in that. And then if they end up with a complicated patient, they call infectious disease to help. Was there some sort of thing that occurred in your life or that, that motivated you to concentrate on infectious disease? Oh, ooh. <laughs> I've always, I've always been fascinated with the invisible. Okay. And in fact, I, I puzzle what might have happened to me was, um, in my late teens, I was doing a lot of a remediation of my mom's house. And so I think I might've been exposed to something. Probably, and and I became ill, and nobody could figure it out, hmm. and that put huge questions in my mind. I ended up uh, actually the only person that did help me was a, a practitioner of Chinese medicine. That was in the 70s, and I, I so I went to medical school with this big question, like, what the heck happened to me? Hmm. I, I I thought I must have had AIDS or something, and I did recover, but it was uh, I went through a long, year-long phase of tremendous fatigue at the age of 22. Well, the remediation was, um, you know, what were you remediating? Oh, uh, a house that was built in 1875, stripping wallpaper and putting it back up again, and, you know, dust, dust, dust. And, I got you. I see. Uh, and I, I was young and active. Well, speaking of young and active, those folks are typically, you know, they have a pretty strong immune system. I just wondered if you could, for we're kind of setting things up here, and I wonder if you could talk to listeners about the difference between, what is an immunodeficient person? I've I seen you had that term in your, in your introduction, um, where oftentimes I see immune compromised or immune suppressed. Are these kind of the same thing? Uh, yeah, they're all same. Okay. Okay. It's very complicated. There's all many varieties, and different immune defects set people up for different um, microbial or different germs affect people differently based on their immunity. Well, 
I, I know we all hear about bacterial infections and viruses a lot in people, but I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the fungal infections in immunodeficient individuals and, and how common these are, actually. Um, I'm, I wait that it's probably overlooked quite a bit. Uh, um, I'm going to... Bacteria are very, uh, as we say, compliant. They grow in the, in the microbiology lab. They're easy to isolate. You're easy to say, there it is. Uh, the molds are not. Uh, they often cultures come back, as I would say, falsely negative. Someone has an infection, you find it at autopsy, but you don't, you don't find it before the person dies. Hmm. And I think it's based on uh, how they grow. Uh, they, they don't they don't grow by throwing off uh, or multiplying dividing. Uh, they seem to grow like extending hyphae and moving in across tissues. Uh, and I know research is being developed to detect uh, products that fungi make, and because uh, detecting them by culture or tissue is mostly falsely negative and non-diagnostic. Therefore, most doctors don't even realize they're dealing with a fungal patient. Hmm. I'm generalizing. I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, focusing more on the environmental molds that are pertinent to you. There are very many other fungal infections that we see in medicine that are not part of the, uh, not part of the building issue. Now, I, I was looking at a presentation that um, someone had on their LinkedIn profile today, and they, they're a well-respected guy in the public health field. And um, one of the notes, the bullet points I noted was it, it said that there were very few fungi that actually cause infections in humans. Would, would you agree with that statement? Uh, yes. I mean, there, there are so many fungi. Um, and many of them are beneficial. Many of them are actually uh, herbal remedies and so forth. They're very, very, very good for you. But uh, there are a few, as we call, opportunistic fungi. And can you give our listeners a sense of which ones you run into most often, and the opportunistic types? Well, I'm actually limited by the fact that uh, uh, fungal cultures are not routinely done, and they and they. You know, certain levels of science are not yet available. Mm. The number one group is the Aspergillus group, and uh, Aspergillus fumigatus is notorious for being um, the most fatal. You know, it's the fungus that's associated with the highest fatality rate in people immune problems, and AIDS and steroids, so forth. Okay. Uh, and I... that's also that's also an organism that is found. Um, found frequently in the environment. What about cryptococcus? I hear a lot about that. Oh, crypto. crypto yes. No. Cryptococcus is very prevalent, especially in bird droppings, and the AIDS patients get problems with crypto, but people with normal immunity can also get that. So it's a, uh, infectious disease always looks at what we call um, the host parasite paradigm, and you're measuring how how weak is the host, or how virulent is the parasite, and parasite is a, is a general word for all microbes, and um, so crypt can be, crypto can be really um, 
aggressive too. Cliff? You know, um, several years back, Joe and I actually did a, a large remediation in a, in a training center that we have in, in, in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, we wrote an article about it. And I, I mean, that, this is, you know, whether it's histoplasmosa, you know, cryptococcus, uh, these are real. These have been known for some time, and I'm just surprised that there's just not more warning and caution. Um, you know, just in buildings, of, you know, about um, bird droppings and, you know, it, it's just... And bat droppings. Yeah, absolutely. It just oh, seems yeah, to no, be so tall. Very right. dangerous. Ooh. Right, right. So, yeah, they're, they're laden with all sorts of different fungi. Yeah, I'm puzzled myself by uh, a lack of education that's going on. That's what impressed me most about the conference, how um, Everybody at the conference understands the seriousness of environmental exposures to molds and dust, and, and the medical community doesn't hasn't received the message. You know, we when we were reviewing for the show, I noticed you have a lot of interest. Well, I'm sorry. Let me before I go to that, let me ask this real quick. As far as these infections that you treat and you've you know you've dealt with them for years and years and even before people knew there was AIDS as I understand it you you were treating people who had AIDS but or HIV and you weren't sure why they were having these problems but over these years where is the exposure I mean the assumption is this is inhalation of spores is that accurate that's one route I mean you can as you know there's recently been an astragalus meningitis outbreak because the medication was contaminated and doctors were injecting contaminated steroids into patients to help with arthritis and pain and they created an infection. It it completely depends on the route of entry, Um, uh, how the patient presents completely depends on the route of entry of the microorganism. Mm, Okay. So uh, inhalation usually causes uh, sinus, nose, throat, uh, or, and or lung problems. You certainly can eat mold. If you're in a moldy uh, house, your food's full of mold, and so you can get, you can get contamination with a GI tract and so forth. And, of course, fungi grow on skin, too. Well, that, that leads to the next question. Cliff, do you want to go to that? Go ahead, sir. All right. I, I, uh, you focus a lot on something that I haven't seen many other, even though I, I deal with a lot, Cliff and I interview a lot of physicians who are interested in environmental health issues and, and some are specific to mold. But I haven't heard as much talk about biofilms as what I saw in some of the documents that you sent us. And it seems to me you feel they're a very, very important component when you're trying to deal with this. Could you talk a little bit about the biofilms in the human body and how you feel they affect people's health? Yes, actually, um, I recall I read something about coming from the industrial hygienist's uh, work about biofilms inside houses and how molds create a biofilm after they have a certain amount of uh, chronic dampness and uh, and then the, so I was reading the biofilm from a microbiology point of view and and then I went whoa 
Now, why would that not happen in the human body? Uh, so, to make a long story short, uh, this is being this is being aggressively evaluated in medical centers because they know that uh, molds can make biofilms on you know catheters and things inside the hardware in the body, and they've been trying to study how to stop that. Uh, I learned at one of the um, trends in medical mycology conferences that the biofilms are made out of these hyphae uh, that are not, uh, they're too big for the immune system to uh, engulf and get rid of. And the only uh, known medication that gets rid of these hyphae is this drug called amphotericin B. And amphotericin B is usually only given in the hospital intravenously, and it's a horrible drug to give intravenously. But since it does not get absorbed at all, it's a big molecule, it doesn't cross. Um, and I know I knew that it was used in the, uh, in the 90s or, or even earlier, just topically, people would use it for sinus, lavage, or whatever. And so, um, okay, Oh, whoops, I'm ahead of myself. Let me just, uh, this all started because little bit by little bit, I, um, I started seeing people who had environmental houses that were uh, contaminated with stachybotrys and aspergillus, and they came to see me. And I collected a, a large group of people, and they all had the same symptoms. And I analyzed all their symptoms, and they all had sinus problems, a sinus ear and throat. Um, I mean, like 95% of them had one or the other. And uh, with the help of a medical student to analyze all the data, I started using this. I, I thought to myself, well, of course. No, let me backtrack again. Um, there's this uh, Dr. Yen Poinikow did some very, he, he's an otolaryngologist, ear, nose, throat doctor. And he was at the Cleveland Clinic and uh, or the nail clinic. Oops. Anyway, he did this work with using amphotericin lavage of the nose and had great results. Uh, and then the medical community went in there to look for the fungi. They couldn't find them. So they said, oh, it's just amphotericin's anti-inflammatory. And I, I thought to myself, no, amphotericin probably killed the mold biofilm that was inflammatory. So I started using this amphotericin nasal wash, but I did something that I don't think anybody has done yet um, that I'm aware of. I told my patients, because I looked at their throats, their throats looked uh, inflamed, and even if the patient didn't feel it, their throats looked really, really raw. And so I had them swallow it. So they they were washing their nostrils and the back of their throats, and therefore the whole GI tract. And to my amazement, uh, uh, on around plus or minus 5%, 90% got much better. They, they, they lost their sinus problems, their throat problems. They also lost chronic fatigue. They also lost fibromyalgia. They also lost uh, uh, reflux and all, all sorts of bowel symptoms. And uh, that was the beginning in uh, three years ago when I started doing that. And since then, 
I've also seen more and more and more patients who come in with very, very uh, scary neurological presentations. A 28-year-old woman who suddenly suddenly can't walk or, uh, you know, palsies, tremors, seizures, hallucinations. And uh, using this anti-biofilm approach uh, cuts symptoms relatively quickly. I can see results within three weeks. Hmm. And so it's this backwards. This is actually, let me say this, in... In um, you know, in cancer hospitals, every almost everybody has no immune system, and when they get a fever, doctors try to collect all the cultures they can, and they usually or often don't get any answer at all. So they have to, uh, if you will, shoot from the hip. Say, I think it must be this, and then you use the medication as a clue of, oh, well, were you right or not? And and so they're. Uh, there's many protocols that have been developed in the hospital for uh, patients with fever um, and immune weakness. So I was using that exact same approach of saying, okay, these people are living in the houses from hell. They no longer are there, but they still have a bot. They they still might have a biofilm inside their own body, and and that's where I took just this uh, um, amphotericin B biofilm uh, uh, destroyer and tried it out and got amazing results. Hmm. I've, got a, I've got a question. Go ahead, Cliff. Uh, you know, one of the, the unique things is that on um, hard surfaces, you know, outside of the body, you know, in, in drains, uh, in, in other areas, uh, you know, I think toilet fixtures and, 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 and so on and so forth, these Biofilms are known to, uh, you know, to, to 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 grow, and they can be very difficult to remove. You know, and certain, you know, you have to use strong chemicals in order to dissolve them, or pressure or something, you know, force energy, you know, rubbing in order to remove them and, and to get it dislodged. And I think what's fascinating about your treatment is that if there is this film, you know, I'm wondering exactly what the uh, amphotericin B does. I mean, you know, I suspect that it's uh, antimicrobial, that it knocks out the, you know, the fungi, and then do you think it allows the body to then, you know, do the necessary cleaning? Uh, I'm, I'm just a, an observer, keeping good notes. I've had many patients tell me. Uh, 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 one woman said she hadn't been able to breathe out of her right nostril for 15 years since being in a moldy college and uh, she did this uh, this pro this lavage and then about uh, two weeks later uh, she blew her nose and out came a, a, a pebble as we spent uh, it was like it was like a pebble it was not quite as hard as rock but it sure looked like something else and it grew aspergillus fumigatus in in the laboratory and she was she felt much better after that uh, and other people have described similar things that, that they start taking. Sometimes I have to add, if, if someone has, for example, lung disease, amphotericin lavage is not going to get to the lungs. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, in England, they are using aerosol amphotericin. I can't wait to have access to aerosol <laughs> amphotericin. I think it's brilliant, but it, it's not here. 
Hmm. And um, but so when someone has lung nodules, molds classically make nodules in the body. And uh, and they make yeah they can once they get in they cause a lot of trouble and um, it's very common that surgery is the the main the main therapy because they they grow. But but it's, I want to add one more thing. The word biofilm is uh, it's just a generic word. And you can, you can also say that your tooth tartar is a kind of a biofilm and some of them. And, and the, I think the complexity of the subject uh, makes, it makes people uh, sh- sh- what do you got? shy away from the subject uh, because molds don't, don't grow in one culture. They, they're very happy to be living with other yeasts and bacteria they they live in uh, a biomass, if you will, and uh, that uh, that's one reason I was I was I was struck by the fact that just an antifungal would have such a such an impact. And the place that I think people get affected is right at the back, of the roof of the mouth. There's a space at the you know what we call the soft palate, and um, when you inhale, something can get stuck up there. And people have chronic post-nasal drip. I think that's the number one. The the two symptoms I look for are post-nasal drip and nosebleeds. When I hear those things, I I, I think well, this person should at least try to clean that area out. Now, we're almost to our halftime, but I've got a text from a listener that that was asking about, and it brought up a question on my in my mind. They were asking more about fungal infections where, for instance, uh, sutures had been put into a person or, you know, uh, on the skin of, of some type of fungal infection on the skin. I don't know. We've got so much uh, text going on here. I can't find that, that question anymore. But um, I'm curious, do you run into that as well? And, and is that something that's probably not as commonly recognized as an issue as, say, for instance, a staph infection of bacteria? Um, no, fungal infections are well recognized in the skin. Um, oh, you know, there's a whole other detail here that uh, it's a complex subject. Uh, I forgot to add that the the molds make toxins. They make uh, they make uh, aflatoxin. Ones that the only ones that I can measure, the only ones that are available to me are aflatoxin, trichosamines, and ochratoxin. And aflatoxin is allegedly the most carcinogenic substance right. we know, <laughs> ochratoxin is, is an immunosuppressant. And also it's, um, it's been associated with kidney cancer and kidney failure. And um, trichosamines are, uh, they're military, uh, they're well known in military medicine. They're used in, uh, in warfare because they cause instant damage to whatever they touch, whether it's skin or breathing or whatever. And um, I completely forgot to add that in these patients that I was I later started treating, I started measuring the mycotoxin production, and was using that as a marker of oh, these people have, still have living opportunistic molds in them, and if it's not, it's totally not normal to be excreting mycotoxins. And uh, and I found that uh, the, the more mycotoxins people were excreting, the sicker they were. And uh, getting and treating the biofilm and antifungal therapy helped symptoms and clearance of the mycotoxins. Interesting. 
We've got to take a short break. We're going to break for 90 seconds and thank our sponsors here. Fascinating first half. We're going into a little more detail in the second half with Dr. Irene Grant. We're calling this the Fungal Infection Fighter Show. We appreciate having her on. We'll be right back. Please hang in there with us for our brief sponsor break. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, this is Radio Joe Hughes back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Irene Grant. We're talking to the fungal infection fighter here. Cliff, I know you had some more questions that you had sent up earlier on the biofilm did we get everything you wanted or do you have one? No, I, I still I, you know I, I still have a few more Go for it. um you know dr grant in the human body you know you talked about the soft palate area and i think we could all understand how you know nasal cavities and and you know that that would be a, a you know a, a semi-moist area it's not soaking wet but you know, it's certainly uh, going to be moist. You, you talked to, you mentioned that you can have biofilm grow on catheters and other hardware that's been implanted in the body. Are there any other areas that, you know, in your practice you've, you've seen these uh, biofilms grow in, in people? I think the whole, uh, it's interesting. The interior, what we would call inside our body, our GI tract, is really considered outside the body in terms of internal medicine. And the whole GI tract, uh, the, one of my questions uh, is, well, how about the female GYN tract? Uh, all these things could have a biofilm, and there's a bunch of um, poorly defined diagnoses that have been around that nobody knows the causes of. And my number one mission is to... to 
get other scientists really interested in this subject because um, people get better with the antifungal therapy. Uh, uh, I've had all these, you know, one woman had terrible uh, um, irritable bowel and all these other symptoms, and chem- she was chemically sensitive, extremely. And on, in her, since she had, I had to give also uh, antifungal therapy by mouth as well, I mean pills, with the amphotericin. Um, she, over time, completely healed. And what she called me one day, she expelled something very strange in, out, of her, out of her GI tract. And it, it was, she said it looked, it looked really, really weird and big and, um, and strange color. And she, thereafter, she was no longer chemically sensitive. What about it? And I, I, I keep on hearing these stories. So to me, it sounds like yes, the biofilm, and the uh, and the reason. Uh, I think that's why all the other antifungals have not worked. It's because none of them deal with the biofilm. And the, the what I've done is combined the, many of the standard antifungals with this amphotericin lavage. So they take another. Can, can you tell? Can you tell the listeners what the word lavage actually means, oh, wow. so that they can it's, see it? French. Wash. It's French. <laughs> it's a French rooted word. It just means wash. You know, wash. Okay. You take a syringe and you just, you just pour it pour it over the tissues and okay. swish and swallow. Okay. Okay. So you don't necessarily do it like a neti pot where you kind of drain it through the system, or is it similar to that? Oh, uh, yeah, the neti pot. Well, I'm very concerned about. Uh, in neti pot, you don't swallow. You just put it in your nose, and then it comes out. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get it from the nose all the way down to the other end. I see. And but some people do that as well. I mean, they pull it down through, through the the sinuses into into the throat from time to time, just to kind of clear that area out as well. But I understand your point. No, no there was a, another text well, here. Oh, here's an, another interesting fact that sort of got me going is well. People forget that saline is antifungal. At least doctors do. Uh, and and I've I've seen many autopsies and cases of surgery. Where the surgeons go in there, they find something very strange, a mask, whatever, and then they they clean up the whole place with tons of saline. And and that is that actually is an antifungal protocol. Hmm. And but they don't. It's it's not common for doctors to take a pathology take specimens, send them to pathology, and then ask for fungal stains. It's a special, infectious disease people know, oh, this is a particular stain you've got to ask for when you want to look for fungi. But since most doctors don't know that, there's so many specimens that go undiagnosed. I'll bet the, uh, the, actual, fine, the actual incidence of fungal infections might be much higher. It's just not routine to do these extra steps. And uh, and and also, surgeons say send this specimen into the micro labs. They culture everything, but they don't know they have to specifically request the cultures that they want. And so fungal cultures are usually not done because they're they take four weeks long and um, uh, they're expensive, etc. So I'm 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 posing um, that I think really the the incidence of fungal complications is really underestimated. So I, I suspect hearing what you say that a lot of what people think are actually allergic symptoms, you know, that, uh, you know, chronic 
allergy symptoms may also be related to bipolar. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm not negating that. Fungi are notorious for producing allergy symptoms. Uh, it's very interesting. And they've done uh, laboratory studies where they show that uh, in, in the body there's a cell called the mast cell, and the mast cell is full of histamine. And usually you have to have what we call an ITE antibody hit it, and then it'll, it'll spill histamine. Um, but they have, found, they have found that if a mast cell touches a hyphae, it, it totally lets out all its histamine. So that hyphae can trigger histamine completely independent of the allergy response. Hmm. Now, so let's say we've got uh, someone with, um, you know, obviously not everyone can make it up to your, your clinic there. You're in New York, correct? And is it up yeah. in New York? Uh, Tarrytown, New York. Tarrytown, New York. Okay. So not everyone can make it there, obviously. And is it, uh, Do you give, like, can you consult by phone? Um, I think that's illegal because I don't think I'm supposed to be going across state lines where I don't have an MD. Okay. My mission is to try to train other doctors. I, I don't, I, I, there's, <laughs> that's like telling me to see everybody who's sick from Hurricane Sandy. I'm like, no. <laughs> you can't have that. Um, no, it, it is. This has got to be, uh, you know. I think the people that need people need to know who is at risk. And I saw all those volunteers going down there, and I thought about myself how I got sick when I was young. I'm concerned that uh, molds make uh, immunosuppressants. Aspergillus also makes gliotoxin, but I can't get that measured. They're, these are all immunosuppressants, so being exposed to mold might make you weak. And um, and some people might be genetically prone. So my mission is to just increase public education. The, it's, this is so reminiscent of the days when nobody knew what HIV was, but we sure thought it was sexually transmitted. And we were trying to tell everybody to slow down, safe sex, and uh, and it was it was. I think the same type of thing has to happen with this this mold problem, and also the other. Oh, I forgot to also say this, or there's so much to say, I'm going to just ramble anyway. Um, that um, fungal infections smolder. Now, if you get strep throat, you know seven days ago you got exposed to it, and now, bang, you're sick. Fungal infections, they can take months, and so you can't figure out, oh, wow, what's going on here? And many of the symptoms are so vague uh, I, it's understandable a doctor will say, yeah, go home and have an antidepressant. Uh, and, and, and so the whole public needs to know how to, how to avoid mold, and the whole medical community needs to learn how to recognize uh, who, has been, who is at risk and how to evaluate them and then how to treat them. So in, in your can you kind of walk us through the the process of someone comes into your office and you know they they're complaining of say sinus uh, congestion or post nasal drip or um, maybe these things along with some you know tiredness etc. Um, do you kind of I guess you do a physical first and then you you, know, you do a questionnaire like anyone else would but then do you start with uh, some of the other less um, less effective antifungals first? I noticed you said you kind of use them in combination. Can you walk us through that a little bit more? 
Um, I oh, I usually do a lengthy intake and ask a lot of questions. I certainly don't assume everybody got everybody has mold, although I'm starting to see so many of them. It's, it's uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there are many many other infections. So uh, I first have an intake. I and I also do an environmental intake. Um, and where they have they been exposed to fires and stuff like that, and then I, I do the physical exam, and um, uh, and I and I if they have environmental testing, I always use that to be a clue, as a clue to see what were they exposed to, um, and I'm focusing now only on the ones right now that are mold exposed type patients, uh, and then I order. Uh, there's only two specific antibody tests that I can get. I would love to be able to get antibody tests the way we do to other microorganisms. You know, you can go find out if you have an antibody to measles, mumps, rubella. Um, you can't do that with fungi yet. Hmm. And um, and I'm always looking for stachybotrys because even though you all may not find it, if someone has a positive response to stachybotrys, that tells me, hmm, because nobody should have a positive thought to Saki. It's an indirect clue that they really were in a contaminated space. And um, and I have found what's called the quantitative aspergillus fumigatus IgG very useful because when, when it goes way up into the abnormal zone, high, um, it, it parallels symptoms and it helps me um, decide what I'm treating. So that's the thing. and then I and I encourage getting mycotoxin testing, which is deplorably expensive. And I I wish that would become a routine test across the country for or other or other. Those, those are the only those are the only clues that exist right now in this country. And when they come back positive or not, then I make a decision. So if everything comes back negative, I go, mm, well, no, okay, fine. I don't think this is a problem. Uh, but when they come back positive, uh, and I have, um, and um, I've become very comfortable with giving the ethyl terracin nasal nasal oil wash clinically, I'm starting to think it might really belong on the level of toothpaste and mouthwash. Uh, that it's not a medication, that it almost shouldn't be a medication because it's very effective, and um, and it just works. But anyway. Uh, so I always start with that alone, looking for the biofilm, because very often um, that alone will do the trick. So what are the signs that there is a biofilm, say, in the sinuses? I guess... Uh... Oh, to- all those symptoms, post-nasal drip, congestion, headaches, m- migraines. Uh, I've had many, many people with migraines and headaches and all this other stuff just get better. Hmm. Uh, you know, doctor, at the beginning, I don't know whether it was a, a Freudian slip or whether you, you, you meant it, but one of the first things that you said when this patient comes in was whether they were exposed to fire. Did you mean to say that? Oh, I meant fire fumes. I'm, I'm trying to say that I'm not only looking for mold. Okay, but I meant, um, tell me more about the fire fumes. Well, there's other toxicities and other environmental things, except for indirectly, anybody who's in a, exposed to a fired building, that building's been drenched. Okay. Okay, during the... During now, the... I, 
firefighting. Well, because a lot of our listeners do remediation, not only of water damage, but also of, of fire damage. And I've been concerned for, for many years about the hazards of the fire-related particulate and you know, charred building materials and so on and so forth. So, you know, it kind of struck me when you mentioned that. Yes, um, that's the. I think that's a very important area of um, you know pollution in general. And some people who have bad um, or poor metabolic uh, function, so they don't they don't uh, destroy these um, toxins that they get exposed to. And Cliff. No, go ahead, Joe. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm kind of processing all this, Doctor Grant. It's been fascinating, <laughs> and um, I, I, I still kind of go back to the allergies and and the uh, the possibility of of it not necessarily being an allergy, but maybe a biofilm. I know a lot of our people do water damage restoration, mold inspections, and um, maybe mold remediation. They do fire cleanup, et cetera. I, I wonder if you could give us your opinion on, on whether or not the people doing this type of work are getting adequate training and personal protective equipment, uh, if you even know, um, to protect them from maybe, you know, having some of these issues we're talking about. Oh, yes. I'll, I'm glad you worded it the way you did. I think there's there's allergy and then there's invasive infectious disease at the other end, and in between there is this biofilm, and I uh, call that also this poisoning phase. That the, the fungi, it's probably also in combination with other bacteria, make poisons. And this is a common mechanism that bacteria use all the time, uh, uh, and that that is actually the disease. The disease is not an infection. The disease is not the biofilm. Is, in, is just sitting like in your sinuses, but the body is getting percolated with um, many, many different products. And I understand that one mold can make multiple, multiple gases and aldehydes and mycotoxins. We just don't have the diagnostic tools yet. And um, that's one, I, that's where I, I just got pragmatic. Try to get rid of the biofilm and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And getting rid of the biofilm, um, to have someone lose chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia—that's the whole body. And you're only getting rid of the biofilm in the sinuses. That to me matched uh, a lot of what we know in the streptococcus literature. We know that you can get strep throat, but the the organism makes so much poisons and toxins that your whole body feels like uh, it's about to die. And as soon as you just give the antibiotic, bam, the script has gone, and you you feel much better. So I think that that is the in between, and I am concerned about people who uh, both you know, obviously uh, all you remediators have fabulous, fabulous systems because uh, um, you're you're robust and you're able to be exposed to many of these dusts that uh, and my patients would be they would be miserable even if they walked into a room once. Uh, nevertheless, I do um, wonder about uh, people having standard checkups, so to speak. Just like if you work in a hospital, 
you know, you, you might be exposed to TB, it's every year you have to have a skin test for TB to make sure. And if you pick it up, then you get preventive treatment. And so I think the same kind of uh, protocols need to be developed. Doctor, we've got a text question. Actually, I had it on my list as well. Uh, if you could comment about the coexistence or even synergistic behavior of uh, fungi and bacteria uh, when they're in a biofilm. Um, yes. No, there's been research done on that. There's been quite a bit of research, and they found uh, that Aspergillus um, likes to co-infect with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a very, very aggressive bacterial infection in the hospital. And uh, a lot of work is being done. It's still in the uh, laboratory phase. And and the problem with this is the complexity. It's sort of like trying to generalize about, you know, what's going on in the ghetto. It, it, it's very messy science, if you will, because it, it will change day by day or, you know, just do barometric pressure. Um, let me let me do a follow up here because I've got we, we're running low on time and I've got a couple questions I really want to get in. One is I'm seeing a lot of discussion back and forth on our little chat board that comes up as a part of this show, and there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, can't get to you and their family MD or even specialists they've sought out over the years haven't been able to help them and I understand you're trying to get that word out to others but for those people who are doing whatever they can to kind of help themselves I'm, I'm seeing people are using a lot of different kind of uh, home remedies for cleaning out their sinuses for one thing I've, I've got anything here from baking soda to you know obviously the saline solutions I've, I've seen grapefruit seed extract uh, xylitol uh, sea salt, etc. What would you recommend for those uh, in the industry or, or not in the industry, just people who are, are concerned about their past exposures for a first step um, for them at home? Uh, this, this, is a pro this is a major problem. I mean, most of the people I see are already doing all these things, ammonia baths, uh, uh, and and it, it doesn't it, it doesn't cut it it doesn't control it and the other thing there's a, there's a great concern uh, you can't take you can't really use um, an adequate dose of baking soda or saline without giving yourself high blood pressure because it's a salt load and um, this is one reason I want to get my protocol out to doctors so that people can can get this get get this made for them. I see. Okay. And that, well, the number one thing, number one message is that I have never, ever seen anybody get better at all with even my best protocol um, if they're still exposed. If they still have mold in their attic or, you know, and I don't think it's the mold spores that are causing trouble at all. Um, in, in my perfect world, um, all the hygienists would be measuring toxins mycotoxins and whatever uh, uh, gases it, it's it's more than just spores it, it's all the particulates it's very complicated and but i've never seen anybody ever get better if they're continuing being with mold and, and i've so i've taken the position if someone's continued being mold i don't even try to treat them because it, it just wastes their money i see now what about the the volatile organic compounds that come from 
both the mold and the bacteria. What are your thoughts on those with respect to, you know, what their role is in this overall issue? I think they they in the in the home there 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 must be some very dangerous ones. I think such compounds come out of the biofilm in the sinuses. Many of my I've noticed this over and over again. Wherever I think the biofilm is by the patient's symptoms, I see redness outside on the skin. So, for example, somebody has a really bad sore throat, and I look in there and go, oh, that looks really bad. The back of the neck and the front of the neck might be bright red. Or if they have it, uh, uh, you know, in the back sinuses, the, the forehead will be red. So it's, the redness matches. I have another patient where we, by biopsy, found the aspergillus in his stomach, and his stomach, over his stomach, would get red. That's got to be gases. Fungi don't spread through the body without killing you. Hmm. And, and the fact that it goes away with the amphotericin uh, tells me that it, I think a lot of the symptoms are coming from such things as VOCs. Interesting. Now, we're running low on time, but I, I've got one text I'd like to get in, Cliff, but I want to make sure you also get a last chance here. We're not even going to go around. So, can I do your text time. first? And All right. I've got a text from a listener that was at the conference in Galloway. Um, and she, she said here that you said at the conference that doctors like yourself have to worry about getting shut down. How does the worry affect her getting this medical program or protocol and the public education out to the world? I'm working very aggressively. I've, present, I've been presenting at big medical meetings, and that's the only, that's the only way to do it, really. Um, and uh, and I'm, you know, I've been publishing. I'm trying to publish this stuff. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'll be shut down, um, okay. so to speak. But it's... But yeah. I, it, the problem, all, the problem is it's, that's actually been one of the motivating forces. I've had people who are so ill that I really was afraid for their lives, and I had to have them on intravenous antifungals. I couldn't find a doctor around to cooperate. And so... Uh, for me, that's been a big motivator that uh, the medical community has to learn more and more and more about this. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that, they don't even realize that the volunteers that went down there are at such high, high risk. I see. I don't know. That's my next question. Uh, how do we reach out to the Home Depot Lowe's world? How do we reach out to the construction world? This is this is some of the AIDS epidemic it's like the whole edu- the education of the whole uh, whole society has to happen. I guess there's one one last question here. I wanted that. I think it's an important one, so I want to ask it. What about the the amphotericin lavage treatment? Is is that an FDA approved treatment? Is that something that you're concerned about? Or and, and no, it's been that that's been around for 20 years, and it's standardly used in ear, nose, throat practice. Okay, great. So great. it's nothing I invented, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, my, my final question really deals with nails. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that have a you know fungal infection in in nails, and and they're very stubborn. They tend to be really long lasting. And what my question is, is from a diagnostic standpoint, um, if someone has a 
has one type of fungal infection, you know, such as nails, does that make them more prone to having, uh, you know, like a biofilm going on in their, you know, sinuses or elsewhere? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, we've known uh, in microbiology that many different fungi affect the nails, uh, fusarium, aspergillus, trichocytin, etc. Uh, and actually, you could even say that the nail is a kind of a biofilm of its own. And I've often wondered, in medicine, uh, people with bad toenails were always thought to be maybe a little bit immunosuppressed because there's something... You, most people don't get that, uh, and I, I hope someone could start studying it. Very well, could be that those fungi are making toxins in the toenails. Mm-hmm. We, so these are all just questions. I, I think it's going to take 50 years for scientists to unravel this one. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I, we really appreciate you joining us today. And But before we go, we always ask, you know, is, is there anything you'd like to add or any question we didn't ask that you, you want to make sure you get out before we go? I feel like I've been talking nonstop. <laughs> no, you've been great. Well, that's it's the point. Very good. <laughs> yeah, that do. is true. Too. Uh, um, no, I think it's, I think it's, I've thrown out too much information. Well, I, I don't know. I think it's been very interesting, and and our, our listeners seem to like it as well. We've had several really nice compl- compliments come in, and uh, that's been that's been that's always a, part, a great part of the show for me to see these compliments coming in. I, I want to make a, read a statement that you made, and I think you covered this, but I want to make sure that that we maybe end with this, or maybe you want to reemphasize it. A statement you sent to me was severe, persistent illness, including chronic fatigue neurological and psychological symptoms is associated with past mold exposure and parallels intensity or chronicity of mold exposure, impaired cell-mediated immunity, and continued mycotoxin excretion. Why did you want me to make sure we got that one on there? Uh, It's just sort of the summary bullet that uh, I know a lot of... So much effort has been made on to not create hysteria, <laughs> and I'm I'm on on the other end. I don't want hysteria. I want pragmatic, preventive education. And people can get you can get totally. I've seen people totally phobic about mold to a ridiculous sense, but nevertheless, there is a population that the that the world the the doctors need to know about and the patients need to know about if if they are in that group. That have they been? Are they? Do they have an immune weakness? Are they spilling mycotoxins? Do they have all these symptoms? And the, the reason be is because it's treatable. And that's that's why I wanted to end with that. I, I, I thought it summarized things, and I'm glad you agreed. And, and I'm also thrilled that you agreed to join us this week on IAQ Radio. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to Dr. Irene Grant for a fascinating hour show on. We're calling it the fungal infection fighter, and it hasn't changed my. Uh, I haven't changed my attitude on that, Cliff, since the show. Any final comments from you, Cliff? No, I'm done, Joe. I thought it was great. Well, I want to thank Dr. Grant once again for joining us. I also, of course, want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host. Uh, 
Roxy V for taking care of the controls. I think things went really well. Of course, our, our group of loyal listeners, thank you all for joining us. Please come back. By the way, next week, Sam Rashkin from the Department of Energy will be back. We're going to talk a little more building science and, and how we prevent some of these issues that uh, Dr. Grant's been talking about here today. Let's, uh, let's maintain these buildings in the first place. We won't have as many of these issues. And once we do have problems let's clean them up properly so this is radio joe hughes saying thanks again for joining us this week please come back next friday at noon for the next episode of iaq radio has been another IAQ radio production.